Hear the word of the Lord in the final scripture reading this morning. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Great and eternal Father, you are true, you are right, you are holy forever. Grant us illumination by your Spirit that we may further know and understand your word, that our hearts may be right with your law written on them, that our thoughts may be true in all our ways, holy and righteous. Shine forth the glorious works of the gospel of Christ this morning and sanctify us by your word. In the name of Christ who sits at your right hand and through the Spirit who forms us. Amen. So I had, a, I had a buddy tell me one time he went to this uh, debate between a Christian and an atheist and was great, you know, in, in my opinion, the, the Christian slayed the atheist. He did great. He had all the right answers. He was quick. He was sharp. And of course, we say, yeah, because Christianity is what, what's true, right? But at the end uh, of, this, of this debate where the Christian just absolutely wiped the floor with the atheist, atheist, my friend said he talked to this other guy afterwards who said... Man, if that's what Christians are like, I don't, I don't really want to be like them. What a hypocrite. Right? And this, this is what we see. Because the, the Christian debater, he was actually being kind of a, a jerk to the other guy. And I think we hear this being charged against Christians all the time, actually. Whether correctly or incorrectly, we hear people call us in the world, they call us hypocrites. Um, and in this passage is actually we see Jesus calling the Pharisees hypocrites and the and the Herodians as well and, and to understand what's happening in this passage we have to kind of look at everything that's what's happened leading up to this point uh, and, and so we we're going to go back just to, to think about when Jesus entered Jerusalem at the triumphal entry he came in with all the accoutrements of a king right he was implicitly proclaiming his godly and kingly rule and then he actually comes in and condemns the temple and the temple leaders and he doesn't just have the, that audacity to criticize it like that. He actually says it's coming under judgment and is passing away. And then the Jewish leaders challenge Jesus' authority. And then finally in the passage from last week, Jesus gives the Jewish leaders a rebuke in the form of a parable about a vineyard. The point of which being, the Israel, Israel's leaders had always abused and killed the prophets of Yahweh. And would even kill God's own son. And this is where we find ourselves, and and as all of this is kind of culminating, uh, I I hope we can see that there's something uh, far greater occurring than just a question about taxes uh, or or church-state relations or or something like that. Um, And and so if the the passage isn't about that, what is it about? And we'll see that Jesus used this moment to teach us uh, and, and them a crucial lesson about hypocrisy. 
You know, the last verse of this passage ends with an exhortation to render something to God. Um, and, and it begs the question, well, what, what is meant to be rendered to God and by whom is it, is it to be rendered? And so as we trace the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Rodians throughout this narrative, we will see the, distor- the story develop in two stages. One, we will see that a trap is set, and the second, that the trap is sprung. And that's kind of the flow of the story, trap set, trap sprung. Um, and by the end, we'll discover uh, what I think is an unexpected answer to the question of what is meant to be rendered to God and who is meant to render it. And so let's look at verses 13 through 15. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? This is what we see. A trap is set. They come and they trap. Verse 13 makes it clear that they are trying to trap Jesus. And it's laid by uh, what I would call unlikely bedfellows. The Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other. Uh, and it's strange because the Herodians were Rome sympathizers. They, they were willing to submit and collude with, with the Herods, or you know the reason they're called Herodians, because uh, they were willing to submit and collude with the, the Herods. And that means that they're willing to submit and collude with, with Rome and Caesar. But in the other corner, we have the Pharisees, the leader of the Jews that rejected any king but Yahweh. And they were unwilling to compromise on that fact. And so these two groups hated each other. And yet we see them coming together to trap Jesus. Because he's actually a bigger threat to both, party, to both parties than either was to the other. And if Jesus is who he claimed to be, which he is, then he has a claim to a throne that's higher than Caesar and a kingdom more powerful than Rome. And that's the threat to the Herodians. But to the Pharisees, he's a threat because in the parable that we talked about just previous to this, about the vineyard, Jesus sees himself as the son of God. And if this is true, which again we know it is, then the Pharisees recognize that they are condemned as the unfaithful vineyard tenants. And because because of, of this threat against both parties, they come together to work against Jesus And they couch the trap in flattery and a question about the law. Hey, Jesus, you're so awesome. We definitely like you a lot. Uh, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or no? Um, And these these guys, they they believe they're setting a trap which can actually trap Jesus. Um, You know, he's presented what seems to be a no-win situation. On one hand, if Jesus says yes, pay the taxes, well, then the the Jews are going to be enraged and the Pharisees will have a reason to try and arrest Jesus. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, it's unlawful, well, then the Herodians can alert Rome and it'll be tried by Roman law. This is the dilemma that Jesus is in. But Jesus is God, of course. We know that. He's, He's not a fool, right? And he's certainly not going to be caught in the schemes of man. And so he recognizes the trap immediately, and Mark makes it clear in verse 15 that Jesus knows that they're acting out of hypocrisy. And just in the first few verses of this passage, we already see their hypocrisy on full display. Right? We've already mentioned their, their insincere flattery. They say, oh, Jesus, you're so wise, you're so true. You don't care who's asking you a question. You don't care if it's us, the almighty Pharisees, who can arrest you. You don't care, you're so impartial. 
what they believe actually is the opposite of what they're saying. This is what makes it hypocritical. What they really mean is, oh, Jesus, we're so wise and you're so dumb, we think we can trap you. Uh, You ought to care that we're asking you this question because we have the authority to arrest you. That's what they're thinking. But it goes deeper than than just that. Their hypocrisy, we see it it goes deeper. They appeal to the law of God. And in verse 14, they ask about the lawfulness of paying this tax. And of course, you'd expect the law experts to ask this question. But the hypocrisy is that they aren't even concerned with the answer to their question. And we can infer this because they'd be satisfied, I think, as we already explored, with a plain answer in either direction. Because it meant that Jesus had fallen into their trap. Uh, This is their true concern. The Rome-hating Pharisees and the Herod-loving Herodians teaming up together actually discredit their own question due to the nature of the situation. If either party were truly concerned to get an answer... They wouldn't have come against Jesus together as a team, as allies. But we can see that their hypocrisy runs even deeper still. In their question about lawfulness, they are breaking both halves of the great commandment, which summarizes all of the law. Love God and love your neighbor. In this situation, uh, Jesus is both their God and their neighbor. And they're they're clearly not loving him. They're, They're missing the law completely. And this is where I think it's crucial to note that I don't think we're supposed to ever go easy on the Pharisees. I think it can be easy to think, oh, they're just doing their best, trying to lead the Jews in the way of God. You you really can't blame them for that, can you? Yeah, they're a little wrong, but they're just trying hard. But, But they're outright rebelling against God, Jesus. And we have to see their actions as blatantly evil because Jesus does. You know, through all of his interactions with the Pharisees as as a group throughout the Gospels, he doesn't let them off the hook because they're trying hard. You know, in fact, Jesus at one point refers to them as vipers and serpents, a clear reference to Satan. You know, secondly, it's paramount that we see ourselves in the Pharisees. We're supposed to see how tempting it is, even as people who, who seemingly follow God to be duped into a religion that doesn't even recognize its own Messiah. You know, this serves as a warning to us that we have the same hypocritical tendencies as these Pharisees and and Herodians. And how often does our hypocrisy come through? You know, how often does this actually play out? How often do we pray vain and empty words? How often do we flatter with our lips and hate in our heart? Do we pay lip service to God's law And not actually care about obeying it. You know, I think sometimes in my experience in our theological camp, it can be pretty easy to care a lot about the doctrines of theology and miss what the doctrines are all about. You know, is it possible that we actually exalt the word of God and forsake its teaching? You know, think of some of the ways that this concept plays out in your life with God or your family or your friends or or, or your coworkers. And so this is the first hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and ultimately us too. You know, if we don't see these sins as dubious and as wicked as they are, we won't see ourselves like the Pharisees, and like them, we will not see our great need for Christ, who is right in front of us. And so, we've seen that the Pharisees and the Herodians, who hate each other, band together, to try and trap Jesus in, in, a, in a way that they think he actually can't escape what they've set up. Yet Jesus knows they're hypocrites 
um, especially as they feign respect of him and his teaching of the law. And so as we move on to the second half of this passage, we will see how Jesus answers the question we posed at the beginning. You know, what is meant to be rendered to God and, and who is meant to render it? Let's look at verses 15 and 17. He says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. In the, ver- in the second half of verse 15 and in the 16, we see Jesus' response. Right? He says, as the great wise one, as the great God who he is, he's, he's able to answer in a way that, that allows the trap to be sprung, but it doesn't catch him in it. Right? He tells them to bring a denarius, a common coin of their day. He asks them whose likeness and inscription is on the coin. Uh, in, in other words, this is whose image and whose name is on the coin. The answer to both, of course, is Caesar. Caesar's image and Caesar's name is on the coin, is on the denarius. And the name inscribed on the coin would have read something like Caesar, son of the divine. Caesar, son of the divine. And if the Pharisees were actually being sincere in their question, we could, we could actually kind of understand why it would have been grievous for the Jews to pay this coin to Caesar. They'd be asking themselves if paying it meant that they agreed with the statement on the coin. Caesar, son of the divine. We, we, can, we can kind of understand that. But this is the nature, this is the hypocritical nature of this whole trap. They don't care. And Jesus knows it. So in answering the question, he really addresses what's beneath the question. And in verse 17, Jesus answers with the wisdom that only God has. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. The people marveled at him. Why? My question when reading this is why did the people marvel at what could be understood to be kind of like a whimsical answer? He didn't say yes or no. He, he maybe, it, on, on the surface, it seems like he avoided the question. Why are they marveling? And if we pay attention to the details, we'll see that the trap has been sprung, and Jesus has used the trap to catch the ones who set it. The Pharisees and the Herodians are now caught. The result being that Jesus has just given a scathing indictment of the Jewish leaders. The logic goes like this. The denarius has Caesar's image and Caesar's name. So so to whom ought they pay that coin? Well, Jesus' implication is pay it to Caesar. right? His name, his image. Pay it to Caesar. And then we come back around to that question. We must render something to God, and the criteria for what ought to be rendered has now been established. An image and a name. So what has God's name and image on it? If we answer this, we'll be able to answer the ultimate question, what is meant to be rendered to God and by whom is it to be rendered? I believe what Jesus is implying would have been really painfully obvious to the Jews who knew their scriptures so well. The Jewish leaders would be claiming that they are the ones with Yahweh's name and Yahweh's image. And they're not really off base, right? The Old Testament is the story of God's chosen people, Israel. And because of this, they would have understood immediately what Jesus meant. He's saying, you claim to have God's image and name, so render yourselves to God. You're supposed to be the living embodiment of this denarius. Render yourselves to me. That's what Jesus is saying to them. 
But the tragedy is, instead of giving themselves to God, they have functionally pledged their allegiance to Caesar, the false son of the, of the false divine, to war against the true son of the true divine. Now, I have a professor in seminary who wrote a book about idolatry, and the main premise is that in Scripture, you see that what people revere, they resemble. In other words, we grow in likeness to the things that we worship. And in, and in first, uh, Colossians 1, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And if the Pharisees had been worshiping Yahweh, the true Israel, the true God of Israel, I mean, they would have recognized Jesus as that very God. But, so why do they miss him? It's because they don't resemble him at all. They've begun to resemble something else, another God, completely. Whether it be Caesar or the serpent, they don't recognize Jesus as God because they have been revering someone else and therefore have begin, begun to resemble someone else. The point is that this interaction reveals that they do not properly resemble the image and name. They claim because they have not been revering or rendering themselves to the one who gave them that image and name. And this is their ultimate hypocrisy. You know, the hypocrisies we saw in the first half are just symptoms of this, of this great ultimate hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Herodians, which is this. I got tripped up, my man Zach. A hypocrisy of worship. That's what's happening here. The people who claim to be the leaders of Israel have just been revealed to be idol worshipers. They're fakes. They're, lov they're lovers of false gods. You know, they're following the same wayward ten tendencies of, of Israel of old before them. And so I think after all this, it could be easy Okay, we're supposed to see the Pharisees and, and Herodians as, as really bad in this passage, and we've just proved that they're really bad in this passage. It could be easy to, to walk away and say, what terrible people those Pharisees were. God, thank you for not making us like them. Right? But, but we are like them. And that's, the, that's why this passage matters for us. The problem is we choose false gods all the time. We render ourselves, not to God, but almost to anything else. We worship idols. We render ourselves to things that are in their very nature contrary to our God. You know, one of the things Lauren, my wife, brought up to me recently, how this plays out uh, is, is how social media actually kind of functions as a false God of our society. And I think, in my observation, it's kind of easy for us in the church to get sucked into this. Right? The online mob has certain laws that you must follow. It tells you what you ought to value. It tells you what to do if you fail. You know, usually failing means you go uh, into, into online purgatory, having your Twitter account suspended for a while. You know, we, we go to certain online accounts for parenting advice, relationship advice, and, and everything else. The internet has become our great almighty guide. Or here's another one, and I, I, this is a little more broad, and this is something we will all recognize. And one of our most natural tendencies is to enthrone ourselves as God. My feelings and my desires are law. What is right and holy is decided by whatever I want in whatever moment. Atonement is found, if needed at all, by leaning into my own experience of guilt and shame long enough that I can finally forgive myself. But we all know how lousy we are at being gods. And here's another one. Growing up in the, in the church, I've seen this thing, this last thing, play out several times, over and over and over Right? It's easy to worship God's creation over worshiping God with his people on Sunday morning. Right? 
It's, it's easy to, to highlight recreation and sports. You know, the law has been set. This sport, this activity, this hike is more important than going to boring old church today. If you have kids, maybe the idea is that if you don't provide this for them now, then they'll be missing out on this great opportunity. Or maybe they've missed a great opportunity that comes around only so often uh, and regret sets in as you try to figure out how to atone for missing such a glorious opportunity. Right? This is, this can happen. We, we, this happens all, all the time. Think of, and here's the thing. I can't come up with all the ways that every person in this church worships false idols. And so I, I challenge all of us to think about what it is that we worship. What do we render ourselves to other than the true God who has formed us in his, his image and stamped us with his name? And this is the, the crux for us. This is the point. We are by nature hypocritical Pharisees and Herodians. By nature children of wrath, as Paul would say. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we have any hope to turn out any differently than the Pharisees, if we're so similar to them, what hope do we have? And the answer, of course, is we do have a great hope, and it's, it's in Jesus Christ, right? What makes the difference is that we have, we've been found in Christ through faith, who is the perfect image of God and who bears his name perfectly. Throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, we would argue on this side, having read the New Testament, we would argue it's crystal clear that the criteria to, to be counted among the people who have God's name and, and, and uh, image are actually the ones who have true faith. Right? What's, what's being revealed in this passage is that the Jewish leaders did not have Abraham's faith. While they claimed to have God's perfect name and his perfect image, they had actually rendered themselves over to something else. But we as Christ's people have Abraham's faith. And now the image of Christ and his name are upon us. And to highlight kind of what we're given in Christ through faith that radically separates us from the Pharisees and Herodians, uh, I want to use the image of one of my favorite Old Testament stories. It's when the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of, of Yahweh, the presence of God, it's taken by the Philistines and put in the Temple of Dagon. Okay, the next morning the Philistines wake up and the statue of Dagon is on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines walk in, they set it back up, and they said, all right, no problem, we'll keep worshiping him. They walk in the next day and it's on his face again, but his hands and his head are chopped off. That's what happens. It's a great story. And in this, we see a picture of what Christ does in our hearts. We build an idol, try to take its name and image, and Christ makes it about to him. We return and try to stand it back up, and he chops its head off. The difference between us and the Pharisees and Herodians is that we have the Dagon conquering Christ in our hearts, and they rejected him. We share Abraham's faith in the Messiah. And so we have the, 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 the opportunity and freedom to obey that Messiah. Without faith in Christ, the idols in our hearts reign freely, as perfectly illustrated by the Jewish leaders here in this passage. Without Christ, we render ourselves to a myriad of other gods, and thusly will resemble, will resemble the serpent or Caesar or Dagon, or, or maybe particularly for us, the gods of convenience or money or comfort, whatever it may be. But in Christ, we have confidence that his image and name are greater than any that are in the world. 
When we are found in him, we are compelled with thankfulness to render our whole lives as a sacrificial rendering or, or sacrificial offering to the Lord. And even when we are t- enticed by other gods, which we are and will continue to be, even when we're enticed by other gods, we are confident that Christ will conquer those false idols. And so what we've seen in this passage uh, is that the Pharisees and Herodians lay a trap for Jesus and it catches the true beasts instead. The Pharisees and Herodians have been fully revealed to be the enemies of God and we have been revealed to be very much like the Pharisees and Herodians, full of hypocrisy. We're regularly, regularly tempted to replace God with idols and still pay lip service to God and yet we differ because we are found in the one who conquers all competitors and who himself most perfectly bears God's image and name. And so, again, we, we started by asking the question, what is meant to be rendered to God, and by whom is it meant to be rendered? For us this morning, the answer is that we are meant to render our entire lives, ourselves, to God. And we do this in worship, as we bear his image and his name in Christ. And we must remember that it's only by faith in Christ that we can be faithful in that rendering, in that worship. And so I pray that as we see Christ as our only hope and cast ourselves fully on him through faith, that we'll be found with his image and name perfectly given to us, trusting him to overcome and crush the false gods that we so often want to worship. And because we know what Christ has done for us, establishing us firmly and forever in him, may we be people who respond by rendering ourselves fully in worship to him, being faithfully consistent with the image and name that we've been given. Let's pray. Fathers, as we pray every week, your name is hallowed. You are perfectly holy. Yours alone is the name worthy to be praised, worshiped, and exalted. Help us to render ourselves completely in worship to you through the gospel work of Christ, who has rescued us from the clutches of the idols that we often desire. Forgive us when we turn our eyes back to them and remind us of the great and mysterious work of Christ that secures the image and name of God upon us forever. In the power and name of Christ our Savior. Amen.